Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Longview Podcast. I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services. And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar. Our guest this week is Morgan Housel. Morgan is a partner at the Collaborative Fund, a venture capital firm that makes investments in firms that, in its words, are at the intersection of for-profit and for-good. A former columnist at The Motley Fool and The Wall Street Journal, Morgan has become one of the most prolific and insightful writers on the investment decision-making process, as evidenced by his impressive body of work on the Collaborative Fund website's blog. Morgan joined us today in this live recording of The Longview from the Morningstar Investment Conference in Chicago. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to The Longview. Thanks for having me. This is great. So I think some of our listeners are probably already acquainted with your work, but for those who aren't, can you give a quick thumbnail of your background and and specifically how you came into the investing and finance fields? My my whole background has been in writing for my whole career, and it kind of got that way on accident. This was never planned to become a financial writer. My plan all throughout college was to do investment banking. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an investment banker. Uh, This was in uh, 2007. Um, and I, I got an investment banking internship my uh, junior year of, of, of college and quickly realized from the first day that this was not going to be good for me. I didn't want to be an investment banker. The culture of investment banking was so extreme and so hardcore, and it was almost like a hazing process if you're a, a junior investment banker. And it was just so antithetical to how I thought and how I wanted to operate. So then I quickly realized, okay, uh, you know, I put all my eggs into investment banking. What do I do now? I got a job in private equity, and I really enjoyed private equity. It was a good intersection between business and finance. Uh, The culture was much more sane than it was in investment banking. But this was the summer of 2007 when the financial crisis started really blowing up. And if you are a private equity firm that's borrowing a lot of money to try to make all your investments, the summer of 2007 was not a good time to be in that business. So I was a summer analyst with the expectation that I was going to stick around. And they said, look, you know, things are getting really tight. There wasn't going to be a position for me to stay. So then it was, okay, uh, I need to do something else in finance. That's what, what I wanted to do. I had a big passion for finance, but I didn't know what. And I had a friend who was a writer at The Motley Fool at the time. And he just said, hey, you're interested in, uh, in finance. You should apply to be a writer at The Motley Fool. And I had no background or even interest in writing whatsoever. I had really never done much of it at all. But I loved, I loved investing. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll do this for six months until I find another private equity job. And ended up uh, staying at The Motley Fool for 10 years. And just fell in love with the process of writing. And as a clarifying process to really clarify all, all these thoughts people have in their head that they haven't yet clarified. They're on the, the tip of their tongue, so to speak. But writing really forces you to crystallize those thoughts and put them onto paper in a way that I think is really helpful for a lot of investors. So I just really fell in love with the process of writing and been doing it ever since. So let's talk about your current role at Collaborative Fund. Um, first, what is Collaborative Fund? And I heard you quoted as saying you wanted to sort of stay in your sphere of knowledge, so you wanted to stay in investing, but kind of get as far away from what you were doing before just to sort of do something different, have a different experience. So let's talk about Collaborative Fund and what drew you to it. Yeah, so they are a, uh, a, a private equity firm, mostly venture capital and some later stage investing. Uh, and, you know, I, I, had, I had known them for a long time when I was in the life and just really admired what they were doing and how they thought about the world, how they thought about investing, and how they thought about competitive advantages at companies. So I just really admired what they were doing. And they also had this idea that uh, people's, you know, there are so many investing firms these days, and money is fungible. So the ability to write a check, particularly in private markets, is no longer a competitive advantage. A lot of people can write a check. 
So the way that you stand out as a private equity firm is to have a certain set of, um, of, of values and a view in the world that's going to set you apart from other people. And those values, that view of the world, do not mean anything unless people know about them. And then so that's where writing and content and just getting your thoughts out to the world becomes really important. That's how you set yourself apart as an investing firm. So that's why I was brought on to basically just do content and basically just write for our blog and speak at conferences and whatnot with the idea. And I think this is, there are a lot of firms that are kind of catching on to this. I think the Ritholtz crew uh, is, are kind of the forerunners in this, of the idea that you know, there's a big difference between marketing and brand. And a lot of consumers rightly don't fall for investing marketing anymore because they've had, you know, they've scarred from the Great Recession. There's a, there's a crisis of trust in the industry. But if you can set yourself apart as a financial firm with a brand and you're not marketing in the sense that you're not saying, here's what we do and here's why you should invest your money with us. But it's just, here's what we think about the world. Here's where we see the world going. And maybe you like that, maybe you don't. I think that builds a great degree of trust with investors and clients uh, you know, you know, through content that brings it in. So that's my role at Collaborative Fund. So when you sat down and you sketched out your role and, and talked about the firm's objective of maybe conveying its message into the marketplace in a way that differentiates it, what were the particular values or principles that, that you agreed that, you know, these are really important things for us to, to set forth in the market so that we are properly differentiated and stand for something? Well, I would, I would take that in several different ways. The first I would say it's what's really important in writing this is true for all writers, is that you write about what you are interested in. Rather than saying, who is the audience and what do I think they are interested in and trying to speak to them, I think it's just important to write articles that you yourself would find interesting if you were reading it. So that's pretty much the only lens that I think about when writing stuff is, if I was a reader reading this article, would I personally like it? Not trying to think about who is a reader and would they like it, but would I like it? That's pretty much the lens I see it through. But I'll tell you, the values of Collaborative Fund, and this is the investing thesis of Collaborative Fund, is that there's been such a proliferation in access to information over the past 20 years. It's the biggest improvement, uh, it's the biggest innovation in the economy in the last 20 years. And there's a really important thing that came from that, which was a generation who grew up with open access to information for almost anything, millennials and Gen Z, that have a much greater expectation that businesses will be transparent than the generations who came before them because they grew up with so much information. And because of that, there's a, there's a new thing where yeah. millennials and Gen Z really want to align their spending dollars with companies whose, whose values they align with. Uh, because you know now the, the the curtain has been peeled back on how companies do business and their hiring practices and how they manufacture their pro their, their product. All these things that used to be behind the curtain that people didn't know are now out in the open. And so what Collaborative Fund's thesis is are companies that use their ability to do good in the world. You know they're they're a company that you know yes they're a for-profit company but they're really trying to do something good, good for consumers, good for the environment, whatever it is. Those companies are actually going to have a competitive advantage in the market because those are the companies who are going to attract the most loyal customers and the best employees. And that's, you know, that's always been the case, but it's especially become true over the last 10 or 20 years. So that's like the intersection of for-profit and for-good. It's not just something that helps us sleep at night, even though it's a good thing to do. It's actually a competitive advantage for a lot of companies. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. Uber and Lyft, you cannot think of a product that is as identical as Uber and Lyft. Like it's more identical than Coke and Pepsi. Uber and Lyft are the exact same products. But you've had this big shift over the past two years um, away from Uber towards Lyft. Lyft's market share went from 5% to 30%. And a lot of that became, you know, started with the, uh, you know, in January of 2017 when there was this big backlash against Uber for a lot of their practices or corporate practices and whatnot. And so a lot of people looked at Uber and Lyft, the exact same product, and more and more people said, I, I want to go to Lyft. I want to go to that one. That's whose values I align with. 
I think that's just a perfect example of using your ability to do good as a competitive advantage. So like the important thing, a lot of people would call this impact investing. But I think a lot of impact invest investing is sacrificial to returns. They're, you know, they're funds who are saying, look, we might not earn the best returns, but we're doing something good and that makes us feel great. Whereas I think what we're trying to do is only look for companies whose ability to do good is their competitive economic advantage. I think a big theme at this conference is going to be public versus private. Your work at Collaborative Fund is in the private space, and I think some advisors who will be the attendees at this conference might feel like they're kind of out on the outside looking in to the private marketplace. So let's talk about how advisors should think about approaching an allocation to private equity, say, in their client portfolios, right-sizing the position, evaluating appropriateness. Can you help with that question? Yeah, so pretty much all my background was in public markets and then joined private markets three years ago. And I would say when I joined, I thought it was going to be a completely different universe. You know, public's over here, private, there was no overlap. And I would say today, after three years, if I made a Venn diagram of public and privates, the overlap is much greater than I ever thought it would be. You know, foundations of greed and fear and valuation and whatnot are the same in public markets as they are in privates. The biggest difference by far from public and privates is liquidity and lockup. You know, most uh, venture and PE funds have a 10-year lockup. You give your money and under no circumstances are you going to see it back before 10 years and sometimes longer than that. That's, that can actually be a great thing because one of the biggest impediments to public markets investing for uh, individual investors is that they have liquidity, so when they get scared, they can just go in and start pulling the levers and, and, and move away from it. But at the same time, you know, having that lockup and having, you know, it's such a, a different, uh, there's different regulations in, 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 uh, in privates. I think for the vast, vast majority of individual investors, privates are not right for them. And that's, you know, that's, that's how it is. The vast majority of individual investors don't have access. And that's not necessarily just because, you know, they can't write a large enough check for some of the funds. I think most individual investors should not be touching privates to begin with. It's just a very different world in terms of how they're marketed and then the lockup and whatnot. Most individual investors are going to need some sort of liquidity before 10 years. So if you're a pension fund or an endowment, then I think it can be great. For individual investors, I still think it's a, it's, it's a different world. Okay, so I'm guessing your response to my next question, which is, do you think that down the line there will be some way for private equity or venture capital to be in, in a daily liquidity wrapper, whether that's at all possible? It sounds like you would, you would say no. No, well, it's definitely moving towards that direction. And I don't know if I would say daily liquidity, but there are secondary markets that are opening up. The secondary market for private equity used to be very, very small. And in the last decade or so, it's grown to tens of billions of dollars. So there is some liquidity in private markets, but it's still not very efficient. You're going to take a big discount on whatever transaction you're doing, which again, for individual mom and pops out there, even if there is some sort of secondary market, you have to go out and find the buyer and you're going to pay a broker an enormous commission to do it. It's still not really situated so that it's, uh, you know, it's really appropriate for you know, your average retiree out there who's investing their money. I wanted to shift gears for a minute to the behavioral realm. You've written at length and eloquently about different behavioral biases that we as human beings face. Advisors, obviously, a key job for them is managing, mitigating those biases in themselves and, of course, amongst their clients. And so if you're an advisor sitting in this audience and you're trying to think about key biases like confirmation bias, overconfidence, anchoring, things that you specifically cited as sort of like the, the unholy trinity, right, of behavioral biases, what is the short list of steps that you would take to try to fireproof uh, the experience that the in, your client has with you? 
that that word that you used to use, fireproof, I think is really important because I don't think there is a way that you could ever fireproof against behavioral biases. I think they're always going to be around. And this is not something where, you know, you can look at a spreadsheet and get the right answer and it's going to tell you, you know, here's a solution to get rid of your biases. This is not stuff that's on spreadsheets. It's dopamine and serotonin. It's things that are inborn in you that it's very hard to get away from. So when you accept that reality, then it becomes not how can I get rid of biases, but how can I situate my portfolio and my investments to kind of work around them. Rather than trying to fight them, how can I make sure that I never get into this situation? And then so it's setting up a portfolio that if you know yourself and you've been introspective about yourself and your clients and, and their risk tolerance and saying, you know, how did you respond in 2008? How did you act in 2008? And, and realizing that if someone has a lower risk tolerance than they might think they do, then they might need to have a higher, alloc higher allocation to bonds and cash just so that they are avoiding the kind of greed and fear biases that they might fall, in, you know, that they might, uh, fall into. So I think it's just being, rather than trying to say, here's a solution, I think it's just being introspective about yourself and knowing yourself as an investor, knowing where your faults are, and then just accepting that reality with both hands and trying to say, here's, a, here's a, the portfolio that's going to work for me. So I'll tell you how that's worked for me personally. I have probably a lower risk tolerance than a lot of people might assume given my age and that I work in this, in this industry, but I've just accepted it, that that's who I am. Like I'm just trying to maximize my portfolio for how well I sleep at night. I'm not trying to maximize for returns. I just want to say what is going to give me the best sleep at night. And therefore, I have a much higher allocation of bonds and cash than a lot of financial advisors would recommend. But that's what works for me, and I think that's what's you know, worked around my personality. And other people might be at the other end of that spectrum. So I think it's just getting to know yourself and what works for you. I wanted to talk about um, something that you've written very eloquently about is um, all of the decisions that we make that precede our decisions about how to invest our portfolios, like whether to save or invest or who we marry or, you know, what sort of career path we pursue. I, I think of it as kind of like a primordial asset allocation. Like, what about all those decisions? How... Um, can advisors help their clients in that area? And do you think that there's been sort of a disproportionate focus on the investment portfolio at the expense of all this other stuff that ultimately may be higher, higher impact? Should financial advisors be giving marriage advice? Is that the, is that the question? Uh. Maybe. <laughs> no, I think the goal of any investor and their advisors as well is bringing the odds as close to zero that you're going to be forced to sell, particularly your equities. And there's a lot of reasons that you might be forced to sell. It's a a health crisis, a life event, a divorce, or you're just getting scared during a bear market. The, as, as low as you can push those odds, I think that's the key to success in investing. Compounding only works if you can give an asset years, if not decades, to grow. And there's a great quote from Charlie Munger that I love. He says, the first rule of compounding is to never, is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. And I think that should be the job of financial advisors. And to bring this back to your point, I think that really brings in topics of saving and frugality and your household budget, making sure that if you're really stretching your household budget, it doesn't matter if you have a great asset allocation. If at the first banana peel in life that you reach and you know the first slip, a, you know, a medical crisis or whatever it is, it's going to cause you to sell your assets when, at a period that you don't want to, like, that's going to ruin your long-term returns. So I, I definitely think it's very difficult to, have, you know, to look at someone's asset allocation in isolation without taking into to, uh, to, to consideration their household spending and their budgets and, and, and whatnot. So that's why I think there's been a big push over the last decade away from asset management towards more holistic financial planning. And that's, I think, a fantastic push because that's bringing in all aspects of someone's life rather than just, here's our forecast for the stock market, here's what you should be in. 
wanted to build on that a bit. At one point you underscored in a recent piece is that, you know, we're very much products of our experience. I think the, an example that you gave was of millennials who might be more predisposed towards cash, liquidity products, because they've never really had to reckon with high inflation, right? Um, and so I, I guess my question is, take that perspective and put it in an advisor's practice and they have someone that comes to them and they say, I'm, I'm really most comfortable sitting in cash or conversely, perhaps they're a product of the 80s and 90s and they compounded very handsomely and now they're entering retirement and they say, I love stocks, they've treated me so well. And so how would you counteract or mitigate that and how as an advisor do you think that can be taken into account but scalably so that not every single situation is customized to those experiences, some of which are irrational, right? The reactions that we have to them. I wish there was an easy answer, like just do this and then you'll, you'll get around your clients, you know, bias to their own unique history. But I think it's just an incredibly difficult problem to get around. And it's not only the clients biasing their own past, but the advisor as well. Yeah. The advisor, depending on what generation they grew up in, saw different markets, different inflationary environments. So the advisor giving the advice is gonna be anchoring to their own. You know, this is not something that just the clients fall for. So I think for advisors, for their own, uh, you know, for their own, own education, but also working with clients, I think investing history, the combination, like the intersection of investing history and investing psychology is incredibly important. I think it's the most important intersection in investing. And just looking at the history of bear markets, the history of volatility, and understanding how people react to those. And it's, there, there's no easy solution. There's no, you know, just follow this spreadsheet and it'll tell you what to do. But the more and the longer back you go in history, you realize that all investing history around the world is just a series of crises one after another. That's what investing is. And it's kind of like, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the pilot's job is described as, um, you, know, moment, you know, long stretches of boredom punctuated by moments of terror. And I think that's what investing is as well. Like 99% of investing should be doing nothing, but then there's 1% of the time that comes along that's gonna change your life. And how you respond during that 1% of the time is incredibly important. And I think you're only gonna get, you know, kind of the knowledge and just opening your mind to other outcomes in that situation if you spend a lot of your time researching investing history. I don't know if that's a perfect answer, but I don't know of any other way to open your mind to other possibilities than just by spending a lot of time researching investing history. You uh, talk to a lot of investors, and I'm wondering in your travels, do you have the sense that there's a complacency about risk, and also does that extend to the private markets? Is there perhaps a sense that things have been good for a long time, this will continue ever thus? What's your sense of that question? I think a lot of people assume that, because the market's done so well over the past 10 years, and all asset prices are high. I still think the Great Recession, 2008, was so scarring for so many people that I don't think we have a level of complacency yet. I think if you compare moods of investors today to what they were in 1999, it's still night and day, black and white. And I think 2008 was so jarring for people that it's gonna take, like if you lived through 2008, if you were investing through 2008, I think that'll stick with you forever. And I, I think the generation that was investing in October of 2008 is gonna have a very hard time, on average, becoming too extreme on the end of, of being too excited about their investments. I think it'll, it'll be not quite as extreme, but similar to the generation that lived through the Great Depression. You know, that generation never got too excited about investing ever again. And I think you can still see this in overall allocations to equities. It's still higher in cash and bonds than it has been historically. It's moved up considerably in, in the last decade, but I still don't think there's a big level of complacency out there um, relative to what we've seen in other periods. I was in Australia last summer. They have not had a recession in 28 years. 
So that's a level of not just complacency, but I would say almost, it's like an innocent form of ignorance. Most people in Australia have never experienced a recession ever. And therefore, if you talk to them about it, they just kind of shrug their shoulders. And you know, they don't, they, it's not really something they think about. Not just the people who live there, but the policymakers, central bankers and whatnot. It's just not something that they have a lot of experience of. How do you think we shake investors out of whatever funk they happen to be in? And maybe it's not complacency about risk. Perhaps it's aversion to risk uh, based on the experiences that have formed those views. Uh, like, how, how do you shake them out of it? I, I truly think the people who live through it won't ever be shaken out of it. And I think at a broad scale, on average, it's only going to happen when a new generation who did not experience becomes investors. And that's already happening. You know, the financial crisis was a decade ago. So if you are uh, a financial advisor in your early 30s, you probably didn't live through it. You were probably still in college at the time or before that. And 10 years from now, the majority of financial advisors are probably going to be people who didn't live through 2008, maybe 15 years from now. So I think that's really the only way to get around this. And you look at, you know, during the, the Great Depression was the 1930s. There wasn't a big boom again until the 1960s. And obviously World War II was a big interruption within that. But the 1960s was important because that was when the first generation who didn't experience the Great Depression became financial advisors and investors and whatnot. I truly think that's the only way to get past a big event like that is to wait until a new generation comes along. One thing that we know does move people is incentives. I know you've written about incentives previously, and, and you've come to a somewhat counterintuitive conclusion, which is that if rewards are too big, then in effect we dream about them, and those dreams crowd out strategy and reason, to paraphrase the piece that you wrote. And so I wonder if you can explain that to our audience and the implications you think it has on investors and advisors that serve them. And also I'm just curious whether that realization that you've had, that you've articulated through your writing, whether that informs the way Collaborative Fund goes about setting incentives for its employees or with its investees. Yeah, so the basic idea is you want employees to be incentivized. You want, if they do a good job, they get a big reward. That's how it should be. But there's an overlooked thing in psychology, which is if the reward is too big, or if it's just a huge reward waiting for them, then people spend all of their mental bandwidth focusing on that reward, and it's bandwidth that gets taken away from their work, their practice. So the best study from this was a study that was done in India, and they did it in India so that they could, uh, where the average wages were low enough that they could do a mass scale study where they were offering people these street games, where they go on the street and they just do a little, some games with people, and if you win the game, uh, the prize could be six months of your pay because six months pay for these Indian villages was low enough that they could afford doing that. And the higher the prize went, the worse the performance got. So you'd have these people who are, were, were, were playing a game, a little logic game, and if they won, they got six months of their salary and they completely choked. But if they brought the prize down to where it was lower, they would do well on the game. And then so I think that's important in the context of finance because there's no other industry in the world where the rewards are potentially as high as they are in finance. You have hedge fund managers who make literally billions of dollars a year. And there's no other industry where that's the case. Um, and, and, and even for, you, know, you, have, you have mediocre fund managers who can still make many millions per year. So when the rewards are that big, you start getting into a situation where people are so focused on the payday that it's taking some bandwidth away from their day-to-day -day work. I don't know if there's a solution to that. I wouldn't recommend everyone, you know, bosses go out and cut their employees' pay, but I think the rewards are so great in finance that there's no way that a lot of people don't just get too caught up in how much money they could potentially be making and not thinking about their day-to-day -day work. And that's not true for everyone, of course. I think most people in finance are very good, well-meaning people. But the incentives in finance are so great that you get a lot of strange behavior. 
And so do you buck the trend any at Collaborative Fund in the way the firm has set up incentives to maybe ward against some of those issues that you describe? Well, we're not big enough that anyone's going to be making billions of dollars a year yet. So it's not, it's not something that, that, we've, that we've ran into yet. But I think it's true. You know, for most funds in the private space, the fee is 2 and 20. And whether you have 100 million under management or 100 billion under management, it's 2 and 20. So when fees scale that quickly, there, there can be a tremendous amount of money that's, that, that can be made. And of course, if you're a fund manager in your early 30s and you have the potential to be making tens of millions of dollars per year, that's going to affect how you think about risk and reward. It's going to affect how you think about you know, risk management, not just for your clients, but your whole firm. It really has an impact on how people think. One of our goals with this conference is to promote constructive debate, but sometimes we end up with panels where everyone sort of goes down the line and generally agrees with one another. So you're a big believer in seeking out divergent opinions. Do you have any recommendations for us as we kind of think about this conference and how to promote a healthy debate, how to do that? It's a really tough problem. Like, how do you fight confirmation bias and pay attention to people who disagree with you. It's a very difficult thing to do. Because especially when you come across someone who disagrees with you, I think the natural reaction is to think that that person is not as smart as you or doesn't have as much information as you. That's like the path of least resistance. I think the only way around it, and it's still incredibly difficult, is to find someone who you admire their thought process in one aspect of thinking. You really admire how they think about the economy. You really admire how they think about politics, whatever it is. But you disagree with them about something else. Because if you admire how they think in one part of life, that's enough to check the box in your head that says this person is not crazy. It's enough to say, I really respect their thought process here, but I disagree with them here. But it, so if you don't do that, if you're just seeking out people who disagree with you, it's too easy to just write them off as someone who's crazy and like they're not, they're not as smart as I am, so I'm not gonna pay attention to them. So that's kind of what I've tried to do. It's like, who do I admire their thought process on the economy, but I disagree with how they think about the stock market? That's the kind of person who I want to pay attention to, to try to open my mind into their view of the stock market, because I know through their thinking about the economy that they're a very smart and thoughtful person. That's the only way that I know how to get around it, but it's very difficult. It's so comfortable to only associate yourself with people who agree with you. And to force yourself to think about different views, I think is just one of the most difficult things that we do in this business. Can you give us an example of someone who you've reached out to because you really like their perspective in other areas, but saw that they had some viewpoint that you disagreed with? Um, no, no, it's too hard. No, <laughs> um, I mean, there's several people on Twitter. One is pseudo-anonymous. His name is Jake. Um, that's all he goes by on Twitter. And there's views of his that I'd not firmly disagree with, but sometimes he'll bring something up that I won't agree with. But he has so many other points that I think are brilliant. His analysis, I think, is brilliant. So there's a lot of people on Twitter that, that you come across, and people are so eager to share their views on Twitter that I think that's really the, the, the cauldron to find all these views at. You've written about the role luck plays in our lives and how that should figure into our thinking, and I think that you've said that we should respect luck as much as we respect risk, to paraphrase you. And so I wondered if you could expand on that a bit and, and maybe also where you think that ought to enter into the process of allocating capital or, or helping somebody to plan for the future. It's just the idea that luck and risk are the opposite sides of the same coin. Like both luck and risk are basically cousins of each other. They're both the idea that there are things that will happen that are outside of your control that will influence outcomes. And investors like keen are keenly aware of that for risk. They know that there's something that could happen that's going to influence their outcomes that are outside of their control. They can't do anything about it. But luck is the exact same. That's exactly what luck is too. It's this idea that something is going to happen that you had nothing to do with that was outside of your control that's going to influence your outcome. 
And a lot of investors, you know, they consider themselves risk managers and they make risk models and they hire risk consultants. But no one hires a luck consultant. No one makes a luck model. No one considers themselves a luck manager. People just kind of push luck aside because no one wants to have a great return and say, well, I was lucky. People will have a bad return and say, well, the market's risky. They say that all the time. Whenever there's a bear market, they say, yeah, this is risk. This is what we deal with. But whenever there's a bull market, no one says this is luck. This is what we deal with too, even though they're really the same thing. So I think it's just taking a step back and just being a little bit more humble about what happens in the stock market. And when things go down, it's not your fault. And when things go up, it's probably not caused by you either. And I think that's true not just for your own returns, but looking at your role models as well and realizing that you know, a lot of the returns that go on in the market, you know, there's, there's you know, literally tens of thousands of funds out there. So anyone who knows anything about statistics would say, if there are you know, 10,000 funds out there, would you expect five of them to be incredibly successful due to nothing but luck? If that was just a statistics problem, you would say, of course. Of course that's the case. So I think it's just you know, being a little bit humble about your own returns and also other people and realizing that luck and risk are, are, are ever present and they're the same thing. And I think they'd agree an equal amount of attention from investors. If you spend a lot of your time thinking about risk, I think you also have to spend a lot of your time thinking about luck and realizing that if something went well in your investing process, how much do you take that as a signal of I did something right so I should learn from it versus maybe this was you know, not due to my analysis or my allocation, uh, this is just luck in the world, so maybe I shouldn't take it as a signal that I did something right. I know that you're a great reader and it informs your writing. Can we talk about your process for identifying what to read? Um, and sort of, can you give us a sense of the subject matter that your reading crosses over? I assume, um, I, I know that you're reading ventures beyond investment stuff into other areas. I almost never read investing books. Uh, I, I used to, but I feel like most of what needs to be said in investing has been said, and to keep reading investing books, I think is, is, can, can certainly be counterproductive. But I think investing is, in finance is, is not, it's not the study of finance. Investing is a study of how people behave with money. And behavior is a big topic that incorporates you know, lessons and rules from psychology and sociology and history and math and physics and biology. So reading about those topics can teach you stuff that's really important and relevant to investing. So I read a lot of history, I read a lot of psychology, I read a lot of biographies, and just trying to get a better understanding of how people, you know, just trying to answer the question, how do people deal with uncertainty? And how do people deal with opportunity and risk? And then so you learn a lot about that stuff through books that have nothing to do with investing. You're just trying to learn about how people behave with money. Where I find them, there's so many, you know, this is true for blogs as well. There's so many content aggregators these days that sift through the mountain of content that's out there and pick the best stuff. And there are people like, you know, uh, like Patrick O'Shaughnessy and the website Abnormal Returns that do this for people, they just aggregate the content and pick the best material. And I think there are a lot of people that do that for books as well. So basically every book that I read is just a recommendation from someone else. And then the most important part, this is a, a trick from Charlie Munger that I think is really important, is to have no tolerance for bad books. So don't be afraid if you read three pages of a book and just say, this isn't working for me, move on. I think a lot of people feel a motivation that if they start a book, like, no, they have to finish this. Even if it's not good, they feel they're just determined to finish this. And I think that's a terrible way to go about reading. You should have no shame shutting it and picking up another one. So for other omnivorous sorts who are in our audience, if you could recommend one book that maybe is off the beaten path, not in the investment or finance field, that's had a really big payoff for you as a thinker, as an investor, what, what would you recommend? What's, what, what's a good place for them to start? I think my, my favorite book that I've read in the last few years is a book called 
um, called The Big Change by Frederick Lewis Allen. Frederick Lewis Allen was a, uh, an amateur historian in, in, in the 1950s. Uh, he was a lawyer, but he, did, you know, he was a journalist, and he, did a bunch of, he wrote a bunch of history books. And The Big Change is about how America changed from 1900 to 1950. And the change that took place from 1900 to 1950 makes the change that took place from 1950 to 2000 look like nothing. You know, in 1900, we went from horse and buggy. In the 1950s, we had jets. Uh, whereas from 1950 we had jets, and in 2000 we had you know slightly faster jets. Like the change in the early in the early 20th century was just enormous, and he chronicled how life for the average everyday American changed during that period. And most history books are about the extremes. You know they chronicle you know generals and, and presidents and whatnot. Frederick Lewis Allen just said, "What was life like for the average median American, and how did their life change over these 50 years?" How did their clothes change? How did their food change? How did their media consumption change? How did marriage change over this period? And he does such a good job telling the story about how it changed. And I think a big takeaway from that is just how much things can change in a pretty short period of time. Like there was nothing in 1950 that was similar to what it was in 1900 or even 1920 or 1930. Just everything changed during that period. And then so if it happened before, of course it could happen again. So within all of our own lifetimes, we could be living in a world in which virtually nothing is the same then than it is today. I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned or at least alluded to before, which is that we, we often can struggle to, to attribute or measure the sources of our success. And I, I think that you trace this all the way back to fear and greed, explaining that basically our inability to attribute some of our successes can result in both of those impulses, greed and fear. Can you explain for our audience sort of how it is you arrived at that conclusion and what you think the implications are for, for investors? I think the biggest thing for investors is that you're not proven until you've survived a calamity. And a lot of investors have not experienced a big calamity. Of course, we saw one in 2008, and that kind of, you know, you know, showed, you know, showed who, as Warren Buffett says, showed who was swimming naked when the, time, when the tide went out. But that's just true for all investors. Just because you've had a good stretch, and that stretch can last five or 10 years, I think you can't be sure that it's attributable to skill until you've survived calamity. And not just one, but hopefully several. And that can take decades to prove. And so you look at someone like, let's say, George Soros, who has succeeded in every kind of market environment you can imagine, in multiple different asset classes. That's someone who you can be very sure that, his, that what he's done is attributable to skill. Because he's done it in so many different ways, through different environments, ups and downs, he's done well. But for the vast majority of managers, that's not the case. Uh, even you look at something like bonds where there's been a bull market since 1983 through today. So how can any bond manager necessarily say that what they've done is attributable to skill? This is something that Bill Gross, who used to be at PIMCO, has admitted himself. He said, look, I've been a great bond manager, but I did it during a period where interest rates went from 17% to 0%. That's a big, that's a big tailwind. And you know, I, I don't think someone, and this comes from Bill Gross, he said, you know, the, the measure of whether he is truly skillful would be, the, would be whether he could survive and thrive in an environment where interest rates went from zero to 17% on the other, you know, went the other way. And that's a counterfactual that we're never gonna know. And for most investors, I think it's a counterfactual that we'll never know. But I'm most impressed by investors who have succeeded through many different kinds of environments. I think that's the only way that you can really tell that what you're doing is skill versus some element of luck. One thing you've written about is um, how having a little bit of debt can help instill a healthy sense of discipline. Let's talk about the thesis there and also how um, 
investors, how individuals managing their finances can use debt judiciously to avoid getting themselves into trouble. Yeah, this is a hard one because it's something I think is good advice, but I don't do it myself. But it's a theory that I think has a lot of logic behind it, which is that every person and company, and I think mainly companies, should have a little bit of debt because debt keeps you focused. And if you don't have debt, if you have just all the options in the world, it's easy to just say whatever happens, happens. You're not very focused, you're not very disciplined. Whereas a little bit of debt will make you budget accurately and make you say, okay, this is our cash flow for this year. You know, th These are our obligations that we have to pay off in the next year. We really need to hit these numbers. It just keeps you focused. Um, so that's, that's an idea that I really like. But there's another side of this, which is I think the most important part of consumer finances in particular, is just having options not being tied to a certain time horizon, having enough cash that you know, if you were to be laid off or you needed money for a medical emergency, that you're gonna have the options to do it. I think options are the most valuable asset that anyone can have. Um, so there's, like, there's two kind of thoughts to that theory. One is options are great, and one is you should have a little bit of debt to keep you focused. Some balance in between there is probably right for most people, but I think you know, looking at debt as, as great, it's leverage, and leverage is good, that can be dangerous or looking at debt as it's terrible, it's giving your options away, I think that can miss an important part of the psychology of how people think about risk and keeping them focused on a goal rather than just letting themselves go and whatever happens, happens. I want to refer to something else that you had written. I thought it was a very interesting distinction you made between fees and fines. I think this was a subject of a piece that you wrote relatively recently, that volatility isn't a fine that's levied punitively on us investors, but rather it's a cost we incur in exchange for the opportunity to compound over time or perhaps to capture income that's thrown off. And so can you explain how you think that distinction can help clarify one's expectations and thinking when it comes to allocating capital and implementing a plan? Yes, this idea that everything great has a price. And if you want the great rewards, you have to pay that price. It's true for everything. And investing, there are big rewards that are out there that can be earned, but you have to pay the price. You have to pay the fee. And the fee in investing is volatility. You can earn great, great returns over time, but the fee that you have to give up is volatility relative to other assets that don't have as much reward. That's a very basic idea. The problem is that a lot of people view volatility not as a fee or a, you know, an, an entrance fee. They view it as a fine, something that you're not supposed to experience. You're not supposed to be fine. You're not supposed to get a ticket, so I should avoid it. And therefore, a lot of investors don't want to, you know, they want to avoid volatility rather than looking at it and saying, volatility is the price of admission to earn great long term returns. They want to say, this is a fine, so I want to avoid it. And then, you know, so they start trying to be tactical on a weekly and monthly basis. And they're just doing everything they can to kind of sneak through, you know, if, if you're thinking about like Disneyland, there's a, there's a fee that you pay at the door, but it's worth it. Once you get inside, there's a great prize inside. And a lot of investors, I, f I feel like rather than paying the fee and going inside, they're trying to sneak through the back and climb over the walls and trying to get in. They're trying to avoid paying the fee, even when the fee is worth willing to, is, is, is worth paying. They view it as a fine, as something to ignore. So I think accepting volatility and enduring it and, and realizing that it's what you're paying, that's what you're giving up in exchange for long-term returns is a healthier attitude towards volatility rather than looking at it as something that should be avoided at all costs. Um, backing up to your comment on skill, do you think uh, in looking like at fund flows, which are going heavily toward passive products, do you think investors are sort of disproportionately giving up on skill, assuming that investment skill cannot be found? Um, do you think that, that they're perhaps overdoing it in their flight to passive products? I think they are giving up on it, but they have a lot of evidence in their favor as well. And the biggest thing about active management, I think this goes overlooked a lot, is that it's not necessarily that managers can't outperform the market. 
is that most of them can't do it after fees. And then so the, the flow from active towards passive, I think, is not necessarily active to passive. It's high cost to low cost. I think that's where the big transition is. And I think if, you know, to the extent that that's true, then individual investors have a lot on their side for that being the right way to do it. And, you know, I, 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 you know there are great asset, there are great active managers out there. I think there's always going to be. But I think there's going to be way fewer than there were 10 years ago or even today as more people view active as something that not everyone can do, that a very small percentage of people who try it will succeed at it, and everyone else should be passive. I think that's where it's going. That's where the tidal wave of money is going, and I think it's gonna be like that for a while. I don't think they're overdoing it. I don't necessarily buy the idea that if we're so passive that markets aren't gonna be as efficient, there's gonna be liquidity problems. I think, you know, to the extent that maybe that's true in fixed income, I, I really don't see that being true in, uh, in, in public equities. Jason Zweig has a comment, and he says this glibly. He's not really, he's not really uh, you know, being, being, being truthful about this, but he says, all, you know, to make an efficient market in public equities, you only need one buyer and one seller. So if everything went passive, but there, was, there are two active managers out there, the market would clear and everything would be okay. You've also said that you think that the trigger of misbelief is, uh, I think you said, high stakes and limited options, and, and that beliefs are formed within the context of how badly you want and need that thing to be true. And so I think in some respects we're talking about those who are in or entering retirement and haven't saved enough, and they badly, badly want to have a secure, comfortable retirement, and so their tonic for that particular issue that they're facing is to invest very aggressively. So if you're sitting opposite the table from them, you're their advisor, and you explain to them sort of the wellspring of this delusion that they're facing about this challenge that they have, like how, how would you counsel them and, and try to bring them around to what you feel like is a sounder, more repeatable plan? Yeah, so it's this idea that you have a client who, in, to meet their financial goals, they say, the market needs to return 20% a year. To meet my goals, that's what it needs to do. And you say, well, it's not going to and the market doesn't care how much you need it to return. The market's gonna do whatever it's gonna do. So I think in that situation, if you're gonna have a client that's gonna invest very aggressively, they need to know what the downside of that is. And the downside is not that you're gonna earn a market return. The, market, the downside is that you're gonna earn a way less return than that. You know, you're gonna have negative returns. And that's where I think financial planning comes really important um, you know, to marry with investment management. Is this idea that the best advice for that person is you're either gonna to need to work longer, save more, or spend less money. And that's not something that a lot of investment managers think about. They're thinking about where the market's going to go in the next year. But from the client's perspective and the financial advisor's perspective, that's really what's important. I think if we live in a low return environment where bonds yield 2%, the only reasonable solution is that people need to save more. But no one wants to hear that advice. That's advice that a financial advisor doesn't want to deliver to someone. They want the magic tonic. They want to say, well, I know, I know a bond fund manager who can, who can get you 10% a year, so don't worry, we'll do this for you. And maybe they'll get it, but they probably won't. And then they're going to be in a much worse situation than if they, you know, hopefully worked a little bit longer. But there's even, you know, people, you know, if you have a client who comes to you and they're 59 years old and they haven't saved anything for retirement and they say, I, I want to have a great retirement starting at age 65, there's no, good, there's no good news that you can give that client. And I think a lot of financial advisors don't want to do that, so they want to pretend like, oh, I can get you great returns. And I think it's really imperative on financial advisors to grab that reality with both hands about what assets are likely to return going forward. You had a great quote in the wake of Jack Bogle's passing. Um, I just loved it. You called him the greatest undercover philanthropist of all time. Can you talk about, um, A, what you meant, and B, his impact on your 
personal so career. What, what I meant by that, by calling Jack Bogle the biggest undercover philanthropist, is that, and there are a lot of people in the industry that don't fully realize this, but Vanguard is, is effectively a nonprofit firm. And Jack Bogle, you know, there's no shareholders. Well, the, the people who own the mutual funds are the shareholders. So even though Jack Bogle started Vanguard, he was not a billionaire shareholder as you would, you know, the, the Johnson family that started Fidelity. And how Vanguard, you know, paid profits, paid dividends, so to speak, was with lower fees. And so every month, millions of investors were basically getting a charity check from John Bogle. Money that could have been his if he had started a for-profit company was going to individual, you know, was going to, uh, to, to different retirees. And there's a counter to that, which is, you know, if Vanguard started as a for-profit company, it wouldn't have grown to as, as big as it was. But I think few people in the industry, in finance, it has, you know, a rightful reputation of having a lot of greedy and selfish people. Jack Bogle is probably the most selfless person to ever work in this industry, to say, what needs to happen here is that I want to give money back to retirees rather than take it for myself. He's one of the only people in the industry for whom that's been the case. And there are people like Buffett who are going to say, I'm going to give all my money away, but that's after it all accrues to me. Whereas Bogle just said, I don't even want it to begin with. I want it to stay in the pockets of retirees. No one else has done that, and I think it's just a really admirable thing. And I don't think anyone else after him will do it. I think it's such a unique skill. I don't know if we'll ever see someone like that again. Morgan, you're going to give a keynote speech in a few hours at our annual investment conference. The title is The Psychology of Investing. And for those listening who maybe wouldn't have the benefit of seeing you present, what's the overall message and takeaway of the talk you'll give? It's that what really matters in investing is not how smart you are, it's how well you behave. And behavior is a very hard thing to teach. It's not something that's analytical, that you can sum up with spreadsheets and formulas. It's this kind of soft, mushy topic that often gets swept under the rug. And I think the only way to wrap your head around the concept of behavior and learn about it for yourself and for your clients is through stories of other people dealing with risk and uncertainty that hopefully you can empathize with and relate to. And then, so that's what I'm gonna be doing at the talk tonight, just telling stories about investing, about people dealing with risk and, uh, and how we as investors can think about risk in a more productive way. Well, I think on that high note, we'll leave the conversation there. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time and your insights and for appearing at the annual Morningstar Investment Conference. It's been a real pleasure to spend time with you. Thanks for having me. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy and or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services, LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data, analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.